on this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Joel Setacase about apologetics and ministry. So we'll cover all sorts of topics, just like what is apologetics? What are the various views on apologetics? What's his preferred approach? How can apologetics be relevant to all sorts of groups like children even? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can just up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet. We think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast and really just an institution in general that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And when we mean serious thinking, we mean both rigorous analytical processing of arguments, but also seriousness about Christian virtue. So we've tried to capture what we're trying to do with this whole serious thinking thing into four particular virtues that we try to prioritize. This isn't everything, but this is really what encapsulates us. And it's charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So those are the four C's that we try to really promote um, both in our podcast interviews and the essays that we post online and, and all that we're really doing with the London Lyceum. We're always trying to create this sort of ethos, this culture that promotes and encourages those sort of things because we think our world needs more of it. We need both seriousness with our arguments and seriousness with how we treat other people and how we treat other arguments. So without further ado, I'm really looking forward to introducing you all to a new friend of mine, uh, Joel Setacase. I don't know how many of you guys know Joel. Uh, some of you, I know, are avid listeners, the, the philosophy nerds who listen to our show, probably know his brother Parker. Over on Parker's Pensies, you, you might listen to his show on, on the reg. I mean, he's one of the premier philosophical sort of theological podcasts slash YouTube channels out there. And he's also got a hilarious reptile turtle channel on YouTube, which I had no idea until I stumbled upon it and found, wow, one of his videos has like a million views about turtle stuff. <laughs> like how in the world? Okay, enough about Parker. We're going to talk about Joel and the Think Institute and apologetics in general, especially how we think about apologetics and kids. So this should be a lot of fun. So Joel, for those who don't know you, which I'm going to guess, I don't know, there's a segment of our listeners who probably know about you, but there's a good segment that have no idea who you are. So just give us the, the little brief intro to who you are, what you do, uh, why you got interested in apologetics, those sort of things. I appreciate it, Jordan. Man, thanks for having me on. And uh, yeah, it, my uh, a lot of people, <clears throat> a lot of people when they meet me, they'll ask me, so are, you know, are you Parker's brother? And um I, I respect the way you asked me because you asked the correct way, which is, is Parker your brother? And that is, that is correct. Yes, he's my brother. Um, but uh, in all seriousness, I, my, my journey is probably similar to a lot of your listeners. But um, so in 2010, I had come out of the business world and I was teaching Bible at a small Christian high school, Chicago Hope Academy in the city of Chicago. And I was in my, at the end of my first year teaching there, and I'm sitting out uh, after class with m one of my students talking about how the whole Bible fits together. And this student's questions were, were very, very good. And I, something sparked in me and I realized how much I enjoy explaining the Bible and how it fits together and how it makes sense of life. But I realized at that time too, I needed more education. I had my BA in history from Grove City College, 
And here I was teaching Bible at a Christian school. I knew that I wasn't in like my terminal position, but I wanted to find that role. So I set out on this journey to get more information and more knowledge. And I ended up teaching for another year and then enrolling in seminary at Trinity, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, north of Chicago. Well, while I'm in seminary, uh, thinking those big thoughts with you know, Dr. D.A. Carson and some of my other professors, my wife, Elisa, we, we had our first child, Jacob, and then she got pregnant with our second child. And while she's about 35 weeks pregnant, she, who had been working full time as a catering manager, lost her job. And so now here I am in seminary full time, but I'm finding myself needing to provide for my family. I need to find a full time job. Well, I'm, I'm in seminary. We have some connections to different churches through family and family friends. And I ended up becoming a pastor in training at this church in the west suburbs of Chicago. So we moved from the north suburbs out to the west suburbs, and I became a pastor in training and then a youth pastor. And, you know, Jordan, I was an okay youth pastor. Uh, I, I It depends on what you think goes into making a good youth pastor. I will say I love the students. I love teaching God's word. And I love the questions, especially from those kids. You got to see these young men and women whose faith was growing from seed form and beginning to flourish. And here I am answering questions for high schoolers yet again. Well, while I'm, while I'm there, um, I'm still going through seminary. I am answering these questions, but my family started to get hit by a series of medical crises. In 2014, my wife, Elisa got cancer, uh, thyroid cancer. And that was the, the first time that my faith was really rocked in, in a deeply existential way. And I had to figure out what it meant to trust God, the God that I've been teaching about for a few years now, teaching people to trust. I really had to look uh, into God's word and into my own soul and figure out what does it mean to trust God through this? Well, I'm happy to report that Elisa um, is, today she's cancer-free, but it turns out as we were coming out of that one valley, God was getting ready to put us into another one. And when our son Lucas was born, he was 10 months old, he was diagnosed with leukemia. And yet again, we find ourselves plunged into the valley of the shadow of death. death. And here I am dealing with the potential uh, just catastrophic outcome when it comes to my own child. So this, I set out looking for education, looking for wisdom, looking for knowledge, needing to understand God better, needing to know how to teach better. This is not the kind of education I had in mind. I'm thinking seminary education, academia. God instead decided, well, he had already planned that he was going to put me into a a real world crucible and really teach me, Joel, you're going to learn how to defend the faith, but you're going to learn it through the circumstances in your life, as well as academia, but you're going to learn through actually trusting me in the valley of the shadow of death. So during this time, God tested my faith. He made me very aware of my own sinfulness and my own weakness, and then also of God's grace. And um, I'll I'll fast forward a little bit, but Lucas um, made it through cancer and then went into heart failure and uh, spent most of 2019 in the hospital. Um, and here I am, I'm a pastor, I'm teaching people how to, um, how to follow God through God's word. And in, at the same time, I'm learning how to rely on God, rely on his people. Um, I was, um, I, I moved on from being a youth pastor. Uh, I, I, let's say this, 
I was involuntarily moved on from being a youth pastor in, uh, in 2016, the church restructured and they just didn't have a place for me. They wanted to hire a part-time guy. So I came into the city of Chicago and I took an associate pastor role at a large multi-site church in the city of Chicago. Our family's still going through all these different health crises at the time, but uh, God just very graciously provided for us. And this whole, the whole time, you know, I'm still in seminary. My own theology was, was growing. It was developing. Um, and I, during this time, I started to really develop this love for apologetics. Just part of it was the crises I was going through in my, in my own life. Part of it is just how I'm wired. And then I also took this great apologetics course at Trinity that again, sparked something in me where I'm like, this is it. This is what I love. This is what I want to do. But here's the problem, Jordan. I'm out there defending my faith and I'm doing it online. I'm doing it in person, but my apologetic was a mess. And that's, I'm not throwing shade on anybody at Trinity, but I learned a classical and evidential approach to apologetics, which some of your listeners might know what those terms mean. If you want me to to define them, more than happy to. But for me personally, my apologetic was a mess. My motivation was largely, I wanted to be seen as intelligent. My goal, I wanted to win arguments. And I can be a naturally argumentative person. So that spelled disaster for me. And then not only that, but my in my method, because I wanted to appear to be intelligent, because I wanted to win the argument at all costs, my method involved a lot of trying to appear neutral and meet the unbeliever on neutral ground. And so um, uh, what I found was, that, this is a great, great example of this. So I had this friend who was an atheist. And um, let's call him Nick because that, he might listen to this someday, but that's not his name. But so Nick and I would meet up and uh, his fiance was friends with my wife and uh, they went to church together. We, we, we all went to church together, although Nick was an atheist. Uh, we didn't know that at the time, but then they got married and he revealed that he's an atheist. Okay, great. So now uh, I started meeting up with Nick over a period of several months and we were talking about Christianity and why he didn't believe and how he, how he was unconvinced. And me, remember, my motivation was all wrong. My method was all wrong. I can say that now. I can look back on that. And I'm, we, we would sit there in this bar in Chicago, and we would talk. And man, Jordan, I'm telling you, I would bring the big guns, man. I had philosophical arguments. I had historical arguments. I had archaeology. I had, I mean, you name it, man. Cosmological, ontological arguments, teleological arguments. I had them all locked and loaded, ready to go. And at the end of like six months of meeting up regularly to talk about all the evidence for Christianity, do you know what he told me? He goes, but there just isn't any evidence. Jordan, I wanted to go and like, like flip a table and, and, and ram my head into the wall. I mean, I'm like, dude, what do you think we've been talking about the last six months? And so... Here at the, at this at the same time that I'm having these conversations, I'm in seminary and I'm becoming a Calvinist and I'm developing a robust view of God's sovereignty and man's depravity. And I reached this crisis point in these conversations where I realized the the apologetic method that I'm using and the theology that I now understand about total depravity and the effect of sin on the mind. I need a way to reconcile my desire to defend my faith with the acknowledgement that, that my friend Nick and, and everyone else who is not a, a believer in Jesus Christ yet is in some way suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Where did I get that from? That's what Romans 1 says. It says that 
Although men know God, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So there's a, it's not just an intellectual discussion that we need to have. There's a moral reality going on behind the scenes where people love sin. In fact, we love it so much, we'll actually suppress the truth to the point where we can have a conversation for six months about evidence, only to not even realize that we've been even talking about evidence. So I needed, um, I needed to change my apologetic. Um, and really what I realized is that the problem was myself. Really, my desire to appear as you know neutral and impartial and, um, and very intelligent, that I really needed to crucify that. And so, uh, as God would have it, one day I'm, I'm driving, driving along and, uh, I'm listening to my favorite podcast at the time, which was called the reformed Pubcast, which was a discussion on beer and theology every week. And I'm listening to this and they're talking about apologetics and they mentioned something called presuppositional apologetics. And although I was in seminary at the time, I had never heard that term. I'm, I'm literally studying philosophy of religion and I'd never heard the term presuppositional apologetics. So I go and I start looking up presuppositional apologetics. What is this? I, the more I learned about it, I learned about James White. I learned about Saiten Bruggenkate. I learned about Jeff Durbin. And I'm, I'm looking, these are all um, pastors and, and Christian thinkers who practice presuppositionalism. And I loved it. And I'll tell you why I loved it, Jordan. It's because the theology that I was adopting, that I was becoming convinced that the Bible teaches, you know, strong emphasis on God's sovereignty, depravity of man, um, salvation by grace alone. These guys all believed that. And they had this method of apologetics that actually, um, that actually addressed the assumptions that the unbeliever was bringing to the table that I had no idea. I had had no idea how to address. And then not only that, but, but they stood firmly on God's word and were confident enough in God's word to be able to use God's word in their actual apologetic method, to actually use God's word as the argument. So I'm diving deep into presuppositional apologetics. And I will say this, by the time I finished seminary and earned my MA in philosophy of religion, I was standing, I had a completely different approach. My apologetic was completely different, but there was still one problem. And that one problem was um, my own argumentative nature. So I, I knew now what the Bible taught. Okay, I knew I had a better apologetic method, but my own heart still needed to change. And what I realized was I had this desire to win the argument that, it, that needed to be humbled. And so um, I actually, I was living in, um, uh, let's see. So that I, was this, I was still a youth pastor at this time. And I found myself getting in these arguments over theology. Remember, I'm becoming a Calvinist, and some of your listeners might be familiar with the term cage stage. And that's that's when you just adopt Calvinism and you become so convinced that it's the truth and you get so so ramped up about it that um, that's all you want to talk about. And really you're you're worthless and you need to be locked in a cage until you can <laughs> until you can chill for a little bit. So I was in full cage stage mode while I'm working at this church, and I was finding myself debating my pastor all the time, which is not good because he was also my employer. You know, so um, so I, I, what I did was I knew about this pastor who is not too far away from where I was ministering, serving. His name was Joe Thorne, someone that, that you know. And um, I contacted Joe Thorne, and I we, we got to talking a little bit, and he was very gracious with his time, and met up in his office, 
and uh, you know, he's smoking cigars and, and uh, we're, we're chatting. And I'm like, look, this is my problem. I'm very argumentative. What do I do about this? And he goes, it sounds like what you need is meekness. And I said, meekness, what is that? You know, that's in my mind, meekness is something for, you know, little girls or something, you know, little shy little girls. <laughs> I don't want to be meek. But what, what Joe did was he recommended this book called The Quest for Meekness and Quietness of Spirit by Matthew Henry. Amazing book. And I read this book and I realized that meekness is strength under control, which is exactly what I needed, Jordan, because now I had this nuclear strength apologetic. I now knew how to use God's word. And that is a very powerful thing and can be a very dangerous thing if you're doing it for your own glory instead of for the glory of Jesus Christ. So God, through a series of personal events in my own life, of um, the, just the right classes, the right education at Trinity, and then through these conversations with Joe and then reading that book, it, it, I had all the missing pieces. And um, my, my faith had been tested and now I knew how to deal with unbelievers with grace and and not just trying to win the argument. So I had to let a lot of things go. But um, fast forward now to 2018 and my time as a pastor came to an end. We, my wife and I launched something called the Think Institute, which is our ministry. We did it originally on staff with an organization called Crew, formerly known as Campus Crusade for Christ. And like I said, all the pieces came together. Um, as soon as we we, we launched the ministry. My son went into the hospital with heart failure. So God wasn't done teaching me things yet. Still is not done, but far from it. But um, today, I'm happy to say a lot of those crises that we went through are gone. My son received a, a new heart. He's cancer-free. My wife is cancer-free. We've launched the Think Institute as a standalone nonprofit. It's a, we're an official nonprofit ministry. And today I'm able to teach, I have the incredible honor of teaching apologetics, teaching believers to defend their faith, especially men, especially Christian men, to defend their faith um, using a three-step apologetic method that is focused on evangelism, is uh, helps them stand confidently on God's word, and seeks to inculcate the motivation in their hearts and in my heart of glorifying Jesus Christ, not glorifying ourselves not trying to just win the argument and being okay with people thinking that you're a dummy. That's okay. Because, <laughs> because they thought the same thing about Jesus and Paul and Peter and James and everybody else. And so, um, so that's what got me to my, my current uh, position. And that's what I do. And that's why I love apologetics so much. It, it's, it's just, it's an outflowing of the journey that God's taken me on. Man, well, that is awesome. And I have like 50 follow-up questions based on all the things <laughs> you said. So where should I start? I mean, okay, so you're telling me this journey, you you had this evidentialist sort of approach to apologetics, and then you move towards sort of a presuppositional approach. I would guess, I ha I mean, I think I've witnessed what seems in the sort of reformed sphere where presuppositionalism seemed to reign supreme, but now there seems to be a comeback of some sorts of evidentialism. So you look at people like R.C. Sproul, who would, I think, I mean, you can tell me if I'm wrong, champion sort of an evidentialist approach, and maybe it's not truly an evidentialist approach. It's sort of like a, a hybrid combo. And I see all the intramural debates about Van Till, where you've got like the guys at the Davenant Institute just published a book 
critiquing Van Til's uh, presuppositionalism. And then I see James Anderson over at RTS critiquing that stuff, saying, you guys don't understand Van Til. Uh, you're, you're not doing uh, a very good job of understanding what his actual argument is. So, like, help me think here. Like, w- why would you say presuppositionalism is superior? And is it really... I mean, maybe what what the difference is, is presuppositionalism for you would say, I'm not against using arguments that evidentialists would use. It's just how I'm thinking about how I'm like framing that. So just walk me through how you sort of like think about the differences between those two. Man, that, that's a great question. And it really comes down to what is apologetics? So apologetics, John Frame, one of my favorite theologians, says that apologetics is the discipline that defends the truth of the Christian message. and But he has, an, he has another definition, an alternative definition of apologetics. He calls it scripture applied to unbelief. And I love that. Because scripture is our foundation. So imagine that someone asks you, imagine your friend asks you, how do you know the Bible is true? How should you answer? Well, if you're like me or anybody, your natural inclination is to start unleashing evidence. Whether you take more of an evidentialist approach or a classical approach, you, 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 you start, you go into argumentative mode, you go into evidential mode. Okay. But if you think about it as a Bible, as a Christian, the Bible is your foundation. So there is nothing more fundamental than the Bible that we're supposed to stand on. There's nothing more basic than the Bible to which we can appeal. And I know to a lot of people that sounds anti-intellectual, but in reality, and maybe if we, if we said Holy Scripture or the Word of God instead of the Bible, maybe people might like that a little better. I actually say the Bible just because I want to embrace the fact that we're just, man, we're talking about the book that you read in the morning over your coffee. Like you call it, you can call it what you will, Holy Scripture, the Word of God. The fact is we're talking about the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. It's the Bible that you know and love if you're a Christian. So the Bible is your foundation. And if you, if someone asks you, what's your basis for believing in the Bible? And you say, well, I believe it based on such and such evidence. What's really your foundation at that? And in that case, it's the evidence. Or if they say, I believe in the Bible, or you say, I believe in the Bible because my reasoning, the thinking, the judging of my own mind, that teaches me, it tells me, it seems reasonable to believe the Bible. What's your foundation? It's your own reason. And someone might say, well, yeah, but God's given you your reasoning. Amen. How do you know that? Because your reasoning told you, or is it because God's word tells you? Is it because the Bible tells you? Well, it's because the Bible tells you. And so the apostle Peter, who knew Jesus firsthand, had, had eyewitness um, testimony to give about Jesus, in his epistles says that we have the word, the, the scripture is a more sure confirmation even than eyewitness testimony. So for the apostle Peter, Scripture itself is the most fun, foundational basis for knowing anything. And I think we're not going to do any better than the Apostle Peter. So how do we know the Bible is true? What, what are we standing on? Well, we're standing on God's word itself. We don't know the Bible is true because of reason and evidence. Rather, rather, we can actually trust that evidence is a thing and that reason is valid or true because of Scripture. Because of the Bible, the, if we start with God's word as our foundation, um, we can reason our way out into the world, and we can see in Scripture that the that God gives us the principles for thinking that evidence is a meaningful concept, 
that there is an objective truth that's out there that we can discover. That our minds, which yes, are deeply affected by the fall, can still reason. And that um and that we we can use our reasoning and our intuition and our five senses, in other words, our truth seeking faculties, to gain truth from the world. We know that because the Bible tells us that. And so when I teach apologetics or when I, on my podcast, Worldview Legacy, I talk a lot about that, about how the reason why evidence and, and reason and intuition and um, uh, scientific data, data, the reason we can trust all these things is because we're already starting with God's word. Now you can say, well, I'm not going to start with God's word, but tacitly or implicitly, if you trust in reason and logic and the, what, what are known as the preconditions of science, we can talk about that if you want. If you trust in those things, you are tacitly endorsing the worldview that the Bible teaches. You just might not be acknowledging it um, because the Bible presents a worldview in which God is behind all those things. So really, there, the way I see it is there are two possible ways of doing apologetics or defending your faith, if you prefer that term. There's the skeptic first approach and there's the scripture first approach. And you know what's really interesting is I recently interviewed a leading Christian apologist who is not a presuppositionalist. And I'm going to release that episode, um, Lord willing, this week. And he told me, this is a guy that um, has written books, he's done debates. He told me, he said, there's only two ways of doing apologetics. There's presuppositional apologetics, and then there's everything else. That's what he said. And he's on the everything else side. And I think that's hilarious because when I teach apologetics or on my podcast, Worldview Legacy, that's the exact same thing that I say. But I call him skeptic first and scripture first. So skeptic first Apologetics begins with the unbeliever. You take his or her claims, you you act as if they're true. And the unbeliever says, I don't believe the Bible. So you can't use the Bible in your argument. You've got to start somewhere else. You've got to start from neutral territory. And so in skeptic first apologetics, that's what you do. You it was it was like what I talked about with my friend Nick. You um you you just sort of try to meet them on neutral ground and say, here's some evidence that we can both agree on. You know, we can agree on these bare facts. But what happens, Jordan? You present those facts, you present the evidence, you you say the best or most logical or most reasonable conclusion based on the preponderance of the evidence is that at least a few of these foundational truth claims of the Bible are true. But he's starting from a worldview in which evidence doesn't need God to exist. Evidence just is, and we can reason autonomously without God. What kind of conclusion do you think he's going to come to? Of course, he's going to look at the evidence and go, well, that I'm not convinced by that. Or even if he says, wow, you know what? It sure seems like th- that evidence does point to God, but you know, science will, will explain that someday. And, I'm, and I remain unconvinced. And that's where you get into this, this endless cycle of skepticism because you've started with a skeptic first approach. Now, the flip side of that is the presuppositional method or a scripture first approach, which is where you begin with the Bible. You take the teachings of the Bible and you act as if they are true, which, spoiler alert, they actually are true. And you you take what the Bible says about the world in which we live, about what can be known about God, God's invisible, uh, his, his um, invisible attributes have been clearly seen in the things that have been made. And yet, man, so man is without excuse, and yet man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. And you take that in your back pocket into your conversation and you you don't um, you don't presume to know more than God Almighty about how to best defend 
his truth. And I'm not throwing shade at anybody because I've got evidentialists and classicalists that I love. I have them on my show and we talk. We They know that I'm a pre-supper and we talk and it's it's wonderful. I've had Jay Warner Wallace on my show twice. He's a, a leading evidentialist. Great apologist. I've written for his website. And uh, he, he, he's fantastic. But where, where I'm going to differ from the classicalists and the evidentialists is I don't believe you can be neutral towards God. I think that you you start out in this world having already picked a side. And what the job of the Christian is, is to stand firmly on God's word and to show that the non-Christian cannot live consistently in God's world and and function in a meaningful, thoughtful way without tacitly endorsing the Christian worldview. And you're not always gonna, you're not always gonna reveal that flawlessly. You're never going to reveal that flawlessly. You're ne- there's no you're, there's no perfect apologetics conversation. But if you stick with God's word, you will be amazed at how it silences unbelief, which is exactly what Peter says would happen and should happen in 1 Peter 3, 14 through 17. He says that the goal of our apologetics is to put those who accuse you to shame. Literally to shame. You're supposed to shut their mouths. Not out of spite, but when the mouth is closed, the ears can hear the gospel. And that is our goal, is we want to to, to deliver the gospel. And um, so, man, I've got stories of, I got stories I could share if you want. We were, I've had these conversations with non-believers who go into these conversations assuming that they're neutral. And all it takes is one word from the mouth of Jesus Christ to show them that they're not neutral. I got, I've got two stories in my mind right now we can talk, but I've been, I've been talking for a bit. So uh, let me just pause there. So I do want one of the stories, but I also am curious. And so you, you can pick which route you want to go. You can tell me the story or you can tell me in my mind. I mean, I'm not an apologetics guru, so I could be completely wrong in this. But I thought even for a presuppositionalist, the evidentialist approach sort of, I mean, you pick and choose and use it at, at points, but it's also it's really designed. The evidence is really designed for people who are already Christians to confirm their faith. So there is a role for evidence, but the role is, you know, couched in certain, um, I don't know, subsets of, of places. Maybe, am I thinking about that right? Or am I totally off base? No, I, I think you're very much on the right track. So I've got my um, my copy somewhere around. I mean, maybe I just put it on my shelf. But Cornelius Van Til is the godfather of Christian, apolog- of Christian presuppositional apologetics. And... He has a book called Christian Theistic Evidences. And I'm like two thirds of the way through. I haven't read the whole thing yet. But that book really puts to death the myth that presuppositional apologetics has nothing to do with evidence. On the contrary, biblical apologetics, presuppositional apologetics loves evidence. And as a matter of fact, the entire world, Jordan, is evidence for the truth of Scripture. Um, I, I think it was Van Til who said that if you squeeze your toothpaste tube in the morning and expect toothpaste to come out, that's evidence and proof of the biblical worldview. The reason why is because God has created this world in a consistent way such that the future will be like the past. Inductive reasoning is possible. In other words, we can make conclusions about the whole based on a very limited sample size. You don't have to test all the tubes of toothpaste in the world to know that the next tube of toothpaste is going to squeeze out when you squeeze it. So the entire world is evidence for God. The question is really, what foundation are you standing on? Are you 
Are you standing on some hypothetical neutral platform where you're hoping that the unbeliever is going to join you and you, the two of you are just going to reason these these bare facts, you're going to reason from them and, and figure out which um, which conclusion is most likely? Because scripture never presents that as an opportunity. It never presents that as a possibility. In the Bible, there is no neutrality. Think about Elijah on Mount Carmel when he's challenging the prophets of Baal. And if you know that story, you you love that story. You can't know that story and not love the way Elijah calls out the prophets of Baal and says that their God is is going to the bathroom or maybe he's gone on a trip. But have you ever thought about what Elijah says to the Israelites who are gathered prior to that whole encounter? He says, how long will you limp between two opinions? He He's calling them lame. He's saying, you can't pretend to be neutral here. He says, if if Yahweh is, is Lord, if Yahweh is God, serve him. If Baal is Lord, then serve him. But you can't, to, to assume that you can be neutral between the two is to reject the exclusive claims of the Lord in scripture. That's what Eve did in the garden. When The minute that Eve took it upon herself, took the prerogative on herself to decide whether or not the Lord's commands needed to be obeyed, she was already in sin mode. She was already rejecting the absolute authority of God. So I love evidence and I love I, I love um, books like Person of Interest by J. Warner Wallace, Evidence That Demands a Verdict by um, Josh and Sean McDowell. The, the new edition that just came out is excellent. I love that evidence, but I love that evidence, Jordan, as you said, because I'm a Christian. Now, does that mean that God can't use evidence to bring a non-Christian into the fold? No, of course not. As my friend Seitzen Brigincate says, God can strike a straight blow with a bent stick. But in Scripture, what is the approach that we see? We see the truth of God being boldly proclaimed, the myth of neutrality not being assumed by Christians, and we see the, the non-Christian worldview continuously being undercut. If you read through the Gospels and you look at the encounters that Jesus had with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or you look at Paul on the Areopagus, Mars Hill, in Acts 17, there is a consistent approach that Jesus and Paul took to their apologetic, which is to undercut the non-believing worldview. And uh, so show the problem with the unbelieving worldview. Show how biblical truth solves that problem and does not actually fall prey to the accusations of the unbeliever. And then to call the unbeliever to repentance and faith. And so that's the method that I try to teach. Is evidence a part of that? 100%, absolutely. And I've got episodes of my podcast de- devoted to that. But um, but evidence is not our foundation. I think that's the, really the linchpin. Yeah, no, that's helpful. So I also want to think, uh, walk me through, I mean, you in the institute that you have, the Think Institute and everything, I, I, I mean, how is apologetics relevant to not just the pastors or seminary students, but also to parents, to even children? I mean, what does it look like for them to think about apologetics? Yeah, that's a great question. So first thing we have to realize is that apologetics is for everyone. It's for every Christian. The charter passage of apologetics is 1 Peter 3.15. And really that whole passage in context lays out the command to engage in apologetics. 
to always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And who is that? Who is Peter writing to? Well, if you go back to chapter one of of Peter's epistle of First Peter, so chapter one, verses one, three, and five, you find that he is yes, he's writing to a, a geographically specific audience, but by extension, he's writing to all Christians everywhere, everyone who has been bought by Jesus Christ, who's been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. So Jordan, that's you, that's me, that's people without seminary degrees, that's that's uh, every mom, every dad. And, and so once we come to grips with the fact that God commands us as believers and gives us the privilege of defending our faith, then we start to say, well, what does that look like as a dad or as a mom, as a parent? Because it's going to be contextualized. So what do I do when my kids ask me questions? Like um, I was teaching Sunday school yesterday. We're recording this on Monday, of course. And I'm teaching Sunday school. And you know what the conversation came around to? Because uh, well, we were talking about Job. Job is the lesson. And the kids, we started talking about suffering. And what happens when you die? And what happens to children when they die? Unborn children. Dude, here I am like, I'm in a, a classroom filled with third through fifth graders talking about what does the Bible say about unborn children? That was not on my agenda. That was not in the gospel project uh, curriculum for that morning. But here I am having to answer questions and walk them through scripture on that. Those questions are going to come up. If you're a dad, if you interact with kids in any way, whether you teach Sunday school, whatever it is, kids have questions. And so really this, this idea of like, should we be ready to teach our kids apologetics to defend the faith? It, it, those conversations are going to happen whether we're ready for them or not. So when you couple the that real world reality with the fact that Peter tells every Christian to be ready to give a defense, you start to realize, well, parents need to know how to do this. You know, we need to be ready. Um, so w- why should we care about it? Because our kids are asking these questions. And as parents, we want to be ready to, we want to train up our child, our children in the way they should go. So when they're older, they will not depart from it. And we need to prepare them for the world that is today and the world that is coming tomorrow. Um, so it's a huge question. And thank God he actually gives us the, um, he actually lays out how to do it in his word. So like you can go back to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7. It says you shall teach, he's talking about the, the commands of the Old Covenant, but he says you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Okay, so so translate that into modern terms. You shall talk about them in your minivan, on your way to karate, and on your way to soccer, and on your way to church, and you shall talk about them um, when your kids come in from jumping on the trampoline in the backyard, and you shall talk about them around the breakfast table and before they go to bed. There's this there's this uh, beautiful framework given in Scripture of parents teaching them teaching the, their kids the things of God throughout the day. Psalm one forty five four says that one generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. So this this idea of passing on the faith to the younger generation, this is God's idea. And of course, it's echoed in the New Testament with Ephesians 6, 4, which says, fathers, do not prepare, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Jordan, I know you know that verse. And uh, we as dads, I know you're a dad, I'm a dad. 
God has entrusted us, just like he entrusted the ancient Israelites, to teach our kids the things of God. So by the time all these passages in Scripture come before 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, which say, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So being ready to answer anyone who asks, if you've already if you've made it to 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, you've already seen Ephesians, Proverbs, Psalms, Deuteronomy, and you realize, oh, this includes teaching it to my kids. My kids are one who will ask, someone who will ask. Um, so we need to be ready for that. And then not only that too, but Jordan, uh, teaching our kids to defend their faith benefits them. It is one of the greatest blessings that we can give our children to prepare them, not only to answer their own questions. And I'm sure like me, you've had your doubts. You've had your, your faith crises. Even if you've never doubted the existence of God, maybe you've doubted why God wants us to worship him. I remember wrestling with that when I was 15 or God, why did you do this to me? You know, as you're going through a family crisis, I I wrestled with that in my, my mid thirties, which some of that I told you about, Um, but it prepares our kids for the world and to answer their unbelief or their skepticism with scripture. Uh, It encourages them to evangelize. We know what could be more emboldening for a young man or woman to, to encourage them to share their faith. If they, if they don't fear the questions that they will get or the challenges they will get when they share their faith. Um, and then, of course, it helps them overcome their own doubts. So um, for parents, you don't need a seminary degree to to teach your kids this stuff. God's word is enough to equip you. And look, there are there are a million great books out there. I've got, uh, I talk about this on my, on my podcast, Worldview Legacy. It's specifically aimed at helping men to lead their families in this in, in, uh, defending the faith, articulating and answering these challenges, but you don't need a seminary degree. You don't need a degree in philosophy. If you can get one and you desire to do that, man, do it. Absolutely. Get as much training as you can, but you don't actually need that in order to, to lead your family in this. That's good stuff. So you've mentioned you have this podcast and it's got a pretty legit name, Worldview Legacy. Give me like the 60,000 foot overview. I mean, what do you, what do you talk about on there? How long you've been doing it? Those sort of things. Uh, yeah, cool. So I started the podcast in 2019. The main thing with worldview legacy, it's the show that helps Christian laymen. So non-pastors become the worldview leaders that their families and churches need. And the goal of the show is that you would build a legacy for your families where you and your kids and your wife will be able to confidently articulate the answers to the questions the world is asking from the Bible and that you would see Jesus change lives as you share your faith. That's in your own home, in your local area, in the context where God has placed you. So every week you're going to hear from me, whether interviewing a preacher, teacher, theologian, scholar, or You might hear me in dialogue and debate with a skeptic, an atheist, a Muslim. Uh, We do debate episodes, but what I try to do, Jordan, is I try to walk, when we do the debate episodes, I try to, you're going to hear a lot of commentary from me. I view it as a teaching time, a teaching tool, Uh, not because I have everything figured out, but because you can learn from the things that by God's grace I do right and the things that I do wrong. I'm very much on this journey as well, but you'll hear my commentary to say, okay, this is what this person is saying, here's how I responded. 
here's why I responded that way. So again, it's 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 designed to give you, uh, in a relatively short period of time, concrete, practical ways that you can improve your own apologetic. Again, so you don't have to go to seminary to learn all this stuff. Um, you can listen to it while you're driving in your car. You can um, you can listen, you know, while you're washing the dishes, changing a diaper, um, whatever, getting ready to have your. We've got grand grandparents that listen. So, you know, your grandkids are on their way over. You listen to an episode of Worldview Legacy and get ready to answer your grandkids' questions. You know, what 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 a joy to be able to do that. Um, and then we supplement this. We have an online community with over 700 members. It's called the Think Squad. So Think Institute, Think Squad. We've got 700 members who are on the same journey as our listeners. And they're seeking to become the worldview leaders that their families and churches need. I do some other things as well, but those are the probably the two main things that your listeners might be most interested in. Awesome. Well, I think everybody can tell that you are a quality podcast host. I mean, you're smooth, silky smooth. I mean, let's be honest, you're better than Parker. So, you know, <laughs> go ahead, put that out there. Oh, uh, that's good. The check is in the mail, Jordan. Thank you. <laughs> I, I hope Parker listens long enough to get that. Uh, I, I enjoy roasting him. So, I mean, <laughs> this has been all. awesome, dude. So this has been really cool. So I've really enjoyed learning uh, from you about apologetics, but also learning a little bit about your own story and the Think Institute, the genesis of that. I mean, that's, that's really cool. So I'm what I'm going to do now is going to go subscribe to the Worldview Legacy podcast because I can... I can do that. So, you know, all you listeners out there, you whatever you're listening on, whether that's Apple, which I think is probably most of you um, on the iTunes app or whatever, or if you're listening to Spotify like me, you can hit that little follow or subscribe button. Do that. Um, support, support other people who are putting in time, effort, resources, and all sorts of things to benefit and to encourage other people in their own walks with Christ. And I think you can tell that Joel has a, the right disposition about it. I mean, he talked about his own journey of sort of crucifying that, you know, impulse to just want to be the smartest person in the room, which I think if you're a dude listening to this um, and you like theology or philosophy, you've had that issue in your life. It's an ongoing battle and we want to fight that and say, no, no, that's not how Christ called us to be. Um, So I I think that's, I mean, it's really cool. So thanks, Joel, for taking the time to talk with us. I'm going to link to these things in the show notes so you can easily just click it and you can find his podcast, you can find the website, all those sorts of fun things. Uh, commend all that he's doing there. So it's it's really cool. Thanks again, Joel. And everybody's been listening. As you know, this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.